0: Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Janis Grimm. Janis heads the research group Radical Spaces at the Interact Center for Interdisciplinary Peace and Conflict Research at Freie Universität Berlin. He's done some fascinating work on peace, conflict and protest with a particular focus on Egypt. He's the author of the fabulous and prize-winning book, Contested Legitimacies, Repression and Revolt in Post-Revolutionary Egypt, which is published by the University of Amsterdam Press, and it's available in open access form. I'm really looking forward to talking with Janes today. It's been a real pleasure to read his work in a number of different outlets over the past few years. So, Yanis, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in these questions in Egypt, in authoritarianism, in protest, and the Academy more broadly, please?
1: Yeah, sure, Simon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on board of this show. So, at a at it's basis, actually, I got interested in, in working on the Middle East through, through my high school years. Actually, my parents were teachers at a, at a German school in Cairo. So that's where I actually did my, my, my German abitur at the German school in Doki. And I, while I was there, I, of course, this were the Mubarak years. Um, I got interested mainly, you know, in Arabic language and, and, and that's why I studied basically Islamic studies first, uh, mm-hmm. uh, during my undergrad. And then, like as the undergrads went along, um, I was a, on a flight to to Cairo and and uh, and to learn better Arabic, basically. And then the Arab Spring happened, and I was fortunate enough to, you know, witness some of this uh, these processes firsthand. That that kind of got me interested, I guess. That has left an imprint, especially these experiences of repression and violence, and how people are affected by it, and how they make meaning out of it. I think that that has left a and input up until today, I would say, and that's what, kept, that's what kind of has kept me like interested both in the Middle East, but also in, specifically in Palestine.
0: Sure, yeah, I can I can certainly understand why why that would be the case. Before we go into that in in a bit more detail, just tell us a little bit, Yannis, about about that time in Egypt then when your your parents were were working there. What are your your memories of, of Cairo as a youngster?
1: Uh, well, to be frank, I mean uh, they're they're quite mixed in a way. Uh, these were kind of the good Mubarak years And uh, however, I was also a bit insulated, of course, through my upbringing at a German school, which is not populated by the average Egyptian, of course, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a, a, a rather elite, uh, um, you know, uh, group of folks who who do their their, their school years there. So, in a way, Egypt was fine to me on the outside, but uh, at the same time, of course, you could hear those stories from, be it, you know, parents of other kids, of colleagues, of friends of my parents, or friends of mine, and so on, where, you know, they would live next to a police station and would, you know, um, uh, talk about the experiences of having someone uh, being interrogated. There was this constant, you know, fear undertone, especially among those who were not as uh, fortunate in terms of material wealth, and um, that was something that was interesting to me at the time. To, but to be honest, it was not out in the open as much. Um, however, you know, uh, I, I was a pupil at school, so uh, in those years, I guess um, my my sensitivities for, for, for politics were not as uh, developed as they are as they were afterwards. But I guess these experiences of, of you know protest explosion in in, in 2010, 11 then um, they. I think they left such a deep imprint because they're so starkly conscious with the way how I, I had experienced living and, and, you know, uh, studying in Egypt before. It, it was almost like, you know, this is something that I've, I've never seen before. Of course, mm-hmm. police and everything was ubiquitous, but, uh, this kind of, you know, blunt, uh, 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 force towards protesters, but also the, the defiance of people actually and the boldness of this whole, you know, mobilization. Uh, that was something new and that was something quite inspiring to
0: be found. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it was. I mean we've all seen the the incredibly powerful images and videos and uh heard the, the, the stories and the, the lived experiences from those times and it's 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 hard not to be inspired by, by everything that took place in those those days in late January. But in the run up to that how long had you you been studying in Cairo? Then is this something that that happened quite quickly after you got there, or had you be, been sort of immersed in the sort of the the, the final days of the Mubarak regime in the run up to that?
1: Um, I, I had been there since October, basically since October twenty ten. I was there, and uh, um, so so we of course witnessed during the final days of the Mubarak. It, to, you know during what would be the final days of the Mubarak regime we of course witnessed those events that were happening in Tunisia next door but incidentally i mean i i i did not believe that this would uh, i like a lot of people around me at least at the time um that I was surrounded with at least or I was in touch with did not believe that would this these events would actually swap over into egypt until they actually until it actually happened on on january twenty five I remember actually i at the time blogs were of course still still pretty big and i I wrote a blog post, one of the student blogs that, uh, that, that, you write when you're in your studies and you want to make sense of what you're witnessing in the world. And I wrote this blog post, uh, together with a, with an Egyptian colleague of mine, where we said like, you know, um, Egyptians are watching on TV and then, you know, uh, um, cheering to, to, to what they're witnessing in Tunisia, but at the same time being too lazy to my out. And of course that was an incredibly short-sighted and incredibly false assumption at the time, also very much informed, I guess, by those uh, studies that I, I had enjoyed before, these political science studies that were so much, you know, centred on authoritarian survival, adaptation, stabilisation, etc., that it was it simply seemed inconceivable, actually, that that, that change of that magnitude would come about. So when it actually happened, and when we went down because the internet and phones and everything were cut off, it, it was just amazing uh, to to you know have the chance to be part of that and at least experience to a certain degree. What was going on around there, and I, I guess since I, I spent a couple of school years before there, it felt like very close to home, um, even though at the time I wasn't living in Egypt anymore.
0: Yeah, sure. I can I can only imagine. So take us take us to Cairo then um, in in late January 2011. What was it like for you, and what were you doing at this at this point in time? And I'm curious to to hear your your story and your recollections. Because obviously that has a huge impact on, on you as a scholar, Yanis. So if we can just go back to Cairo for a little bit, please.
1: Well, I guess I, I prefer not go to, to go back to Cairo to 2011, but actually to a bit later to, sure. to Cairo to 20, 2013, because I think that's actually the part that that got me even more uh, interested. And I went back from... From after Mubarak fell, I was back in Germany. I refocused all of my studies more into political science and social movement-oriented perspective to try to capture and understand more these processes of mobilization from below or politics from below. As I guess, many junior scholars and, and young researchers at the time did and um, get in touch with, uh, uh, um, or stay in touch with uh, uh, colleagues and friends uh, who... Um, where many of them who were uh, young Islamists at the time. So members of the Muslim Brotherhood basically who had been, you know, engaged in politics before. So I got acquainted with many of them through language courses and through um, the you know, the studies and Islamic studies that I had been had been doing before that all of a sudden they had this political window. So there was this wave of politicization among Muslim Brotherhood youth. And I stayed in touch and followed up with some of them through the entire process of the electoral period of twenty twelve. Um and, and uh up to basically, you know, the downfall of President Bush in twenty thirteen. And through those years I already, you know, I finished my school years, I, I, I entered uh, a policy, a policy thinker in the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in a in a major project on, on elite change in youth social mobilization that involved fellows from, from a lot of countries in the Arab world um that, that were experiencing change at the time. And then I was immersed in that project at the time when basically the, the, the cool pollution or the January 30, uh, um, 30, no, sorry, the June thirty uprising in 20, 2013 20, uh, happened. And then afterwards everything that followed. And I, uh, was just flabbergasted by this, you know, contrast how basically through the same process of the mass uprising against an, a thought to be or uh, someone who is uh, seen as an authoritarian leader. Would actually, um, you know, sweep uh, entire government out of office, um, and it was almost like history repeating itself. But at the same time, it, you know, it was already written in the sand, basically, what was going to happen, and uh, and and uh, well, that that was what I studied in my book, basically, how. Uh, the events of Rabah, the whole suppression of the Muslim Brotherhood, and this unprecedented scale of, of mass violence against protesters and against the civilians that actually came about, and how it was legitimized and in the end, paved the way for what we have now, right? For, for yeah. one of the most brutal regimes in the region.
0: And there, I guess, you've got two dramatically different ways of of looking at Egyptian politics. You've got the the optimism of social movements in in twenty eleven, and the the, the mass mobilization amidst demand for change and and excitement about possibilities about reimagining the nature of the political and then on the flip side you've got the the darker side of authoritarianism of a brutal state repression of of mass murder and everything that that goes along with it so you've got these really two contrasting themes that that come out in in some of your writings in in the book and your your articles and the, the the blog posts which i find a really interesting sort of intellectual tension at times
1: yeah so so i think that i mean at the basis of this entire research that i'm doing i think On the one hand, these dynamics, basically, between protest and and repression are just basically two sides of the same coin. They they usually go along. Um, But the way how these dynamics play out, they're so different across cases, across times, and across different constituencies. And um, I guess I'm interested in the way how different processes of meaning-making that are often very, you know, affective, emotional, situated, um, and and you know context, they have to be contextualized also within you know individual memories but also collective memories and histories of uh, of the people affected how they actually um, in a way determine uh, the the room of maneuver for different actors and how these dynamics play out so to to to, to go back to you know the the, the initial uh, to uh, possible basically these, these, these two mobilizations of of the one of twenty eleven and one of twenty thirteen in Egypt that are that are witnessed. That's actually, I mean, the, they play it completely differently, right? Yeah. So you, on the one hand, you have these things like the Battle of the Camels, um
0: on Tahrir during the 18
1: days of Tahrir on, on, on 2nd of February, where there's Mubarak and sending in, um uh, you know, crowds of thugs on camelback trying to disperse the protesters and what actually happens is that it completely backfires on that regime and it undermines its credibility and legitimacy and it, it, it you know, it strengthens actually the oppositional mood on the square and emboldens those that are defending it and turns the entire public mood against the regime. But then, you know, you have similar dynamics, uh, like in terms of similarity in, in terms of the symbolicness of violence, uh, um, uh, it, when when you, when you think of the, the the massacre, the Republican Guard against protesters uh, in, in favor of uh, the release of Mohammed Walsh on Rada Square, where there's it, just this massive violence and brutality deployed against protesters. But it doesn't backfire against the odds, basically, against everything the theory tells you. It doesn't backfire. On the contrary, it actually emboldens the regime that afterwards has to legitimize it. And people actually, most of the people, of course, not everyone, but like most uh, told the line, actually, and in and a new, Emergent authoritarian regime, and so I'm really interested in these dynamics, basically, because often, of course, even the most brutal dictators are not brought into power mostly by people that want to see a dictator into power, but they're brought into power by people that support change and hope for a better future, basically, and a positive vision. Yeah. Um, and and the way how these dynamics play out, they, they you know sometimes counteract these this positive move.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's really interesting to hear you say. Uh, let's just go to your your sort of intellectual journey briefly if we may um you you did all of this in egypt you were there you witnessed things you reflected where does your your phd fit into all of this then well
1: i i I did my phd at the berlin graduate school muslim cultures and societies which is a joint program of different universities in berlin and for me, what was attractive uh, uh, was the the interdisciplinary angle, which I'm also trying to reproduce now within the frame of, of our Center for Conflict Research here, um, which brings, like, the graduate school brought together is both, like, uh, scholars of Islam, uh, um, anthropologists, political scientists, sociologists, but even, like, historians and literary studies are, are um, scholars. And, like, these different angles helped me a lot to make sense of, you know, processes of meaning-making, be it through... Um, language how this produces meaning and how it captures specific emotional registers um through uh you know a closer look at the the way how archives shape underst- our understanding of situations and and how we can really make sense of them and how the ways that we make sense of them then constrain or enable us to adopt certain action strategies over others etc so so this was kind of Let's say the structured way of thinking through some of these processes that have been nagging me before, and also, I mean, I was very much immersed into rather policy-oriented uh, writing before, and um, um, I felt that you know, a PhD and, and 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 taking these topics to the academic level basically was it was needed to to think through these just unprecedented and and, and critical events such as Rabah that basically you know. Mira, uh, on the other uh, massacres of Tiananmen, and so on—that just have been completely under uh, understudied so far. Um, and but that married a closer look, and I think also placed place in the historiography of the Middle East and its
0: uprisings. Mm-hmm. Sure, you've you've mentioned this a couple of times, Jonas. But I wonder if you can just elaborate on what you what you mean by meaning making for people who aren't familiar with with your work or indeed the the concept. What what do you understand by it? How do you use it?
1: Yeah, so, so I understand, basically, following a lot of the, the writing of the ethics code of disco theory, um, the social, basically, not as something that is, uh, you know, not there before a discourse. So, of course, like, you know, uh, an apple is an apple, whether I call it an apple or not. But whether uh, a falling apple is, you know, falling because of gravity or because it's an act of God, that's, like, kind of the meaning that we project on to what we witness. So, in a way, the social, and especially specifically contested social phenomena, such as revolutions, they are sort of, I conceive of them sort of as a hegemonic terrain, a kind of discursive arena where different actors compete and establish sort of hegemony for their reading of social reality. And they do so by, you know, weaving different contested signifiers, the people, the revolution, the state, the nation, um, um, into a fabric that gives the social a specific, you know, order to the exclusion of others, and 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 it's often actually this um that's how I conceive it is that there's unforeseen crises and events that shatter, let's say, our unquestioned interpretations of social reality, and they provide them reference points for these acts of articulation for these projects. They enable both activists, but also regimes, you know, to. To re- renegotiate, if you, if you will, the limits of what is thinkable in terms of political alternatives, but also what is doable in terms of of action. And I think a lot of people have captured these places of the metaphor of this barrier of fear that has been broken. And basically, you know, once this barrier of fear is broken, the 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 kind of sky is the limit, right? All you have all these alternatives: how the political system, one without Mubarak or one without Ben Ali uh, um, or Assad and so on, could not like. And, uh and and this you know um makes it possible to try to reconstruct what kind of meanings people' are attached to and how it kind of constraints or 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 enables or widens their their room of maneuver in the political arena hmm
0: that's really useful and really really interesting stuff um getting at, at some really sort of key intellectual questions along with the broader uh, implications of of such approaches i guess let's Turn to the book, if that's okay, please, because in addition to it um, engaging with some of these interesting and important intellectual questions, it's also doing some really, really powerful um, empirical legwork. And I should say, it's received a lot of awards, a lot of prizes, a lot of critical acclaim. So first of all, congratulations. It's very much deserved. But... uh, Secondly, can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you try and do then, building on your, your sort of long engagement with Egypt, building on these different intellectual approaches, and the, the broader analysis that you've been doing over the past, I guess, the past decade or so since the, the uprisings?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm happy to, sir. Uh, I guess in, in in the first contribution of this book, which is also out, uh, open access so for anyone who has read it so I'm really happy to that 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 we were able to actually together on the open access so I think that the first the first contribution is actually I guess of historiographical nature because in a way there is nothing settled in in the historiography of revolution so these conceptions of what and a revolution is where it started, where it ended, right? They, they, they change all the time. And what this book does, I think, is it provides a narrative of the eventful run up and aftermath of these, uh, the 2013 military coup that was also, you know, still portrayed by many as a revolution, as a second revolution. And it also portrays Egypt's post revolutionary history, I think, as a, as a hegemonic, as this kind of hegemonic struggle that I mentioned before. And it, it's not just as any type of hegemonic struggle, but one specifically over the meaning of what political legitimacy means. And, and this struggle, as the book shows, the, the, the dislocation of one hegemonic discourse uh, um, enabled uh, altering contentious coalitions to change the status quo, and this process is still ongoing. I think that tells us quite a bit about the long-term stability of the regime that, we, that we're seeing at the moment. And I developed this argument in a total uh, of, of five chapters that contains mainly two major case studies. And these two case studies correspond to, to the, up until now, two major protest plays that we have seen in Egypt since the ouster of President Morsi. So the first one is, uh, the, the, the mentioned, uh, protest of the Egyptian anti-coup coalition. So that was the coalition that was spearheaded by the Muslim Brotherhood and established in June 2013 first to defend the then still acting president against calls for his resignation. And then when Morsi was asked, that, it became sort of a coordinating mechanism for street protests. And uh, so this anti-co-coalition occupied public squares and uh, organized marches across the country that were not like, I mean, they had a Islamist touch, but other than that, in terms of repertoires and tactics, they were not unlike the protests that Egypt had with us before, um, but they were like really met with massive repression and culminated in the massacre of Rabat. And then you have a second case study in the book that co- covers a series of protests several years after Rabat, you know, which which are um, uh, the protests that happened when Egypt uh, announced, when the Sisi announced that in early 2016 that it would uh, um, transfer the Red Sea Archipelago of Tehran and San to Saudi Arabia and this sparked then the largest uh, largest uh, non-Islamist protest coalition that the uh, uh, Sisi government had, see- had seen so far despite you know uh, um, unseen repression and, and, and restrictions of uh, civil society. And, and I think like what I try to show in this book is that they, both of these cases... Um, are very illustrative of the link between events and their effects, and both illustrate this conditioning and effect of meaning making processes um, on the room of maneuver of both authorities and challenges
0: and it's it's fascinating hearing you reflect on that and uh, the the book is is wonderful and really should be read by by people interested in in Egypt, but also social movements and and authoritarian politics more broadly. So I'm I'm really delighted that it is available in uh, in open access format. So that that's great news. But Yanis, can you tell us then from those two different cases, these um, two different forms of protest, divided by time, divided by different. Sort of driving um, criteria, different sort of push and pull factors. What are the the broader um, sort of consequences, forms of analysis that you can take out of these two cases? I mean, what are the what are the 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 really powerful messages and points of comparison that you can draw out?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I think. I don't have like this one overall argument that runs through the entire book. I would say I have two sets of arguments mm-hmm. and they're illustrated differently by the individual cases. So I think on the one hand, um, you know, uh, so in the first case, I actually essentially tried to answer this puzzle that I mentioned, you know, the, this comparison of between the Battle of the Camels and Rabah. Yeah, basically, sure. why, basically, why was Rabbah successful? Why do massacres work sometimes, even if they're so brutal and even if they, you know, should outrage everyone? Um, so, so basically, after Raba, the Antico alliance was was unable; was simply unable to to mobilize broader sympathies. And and, uh,
0: and I argue in
1: the book that this was mainly because it relied on a discourse that centered on a very contested master signifier, namely that of the deposed president legitimacy that had supposedly been violated. But the way how the Antico movement basically constructed this meaning of legitimacy is basically alongside four different pillars: of so constitutionality electoral democracy, national security, and kind of continuing the legacy of the January 25 revolution, um, which is just an unstark antagonism to the way they portrayed the coup forces, by the way. But this very notion of legitimacy had already doomed the government of President Morsi to fail, and you know it had cemented the image actually of a president that understood democracy as anti-majority rule. So basically, by sticking to this very notion, contested notion of legitimacy, the anti alliance effectively forestalled any chance for cross-ideological uh, um, coalitions, and this also precluded unpopular solidarity when 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 Raba when happened basically. So. um I, I would say, like, so the argument that we can draw from it is basically the way how we construct meaning and the way how we construct our collective identity, vis-a-vis constitutive outside, it kind of, you know, if, if you will, sets path dependencies for the ways we can build alliances. So once we tie ourselves to specific collective discourse that gives our struggle meaning, mm-hmm. it's pretty hard to abandon the discourse and open up, uh, you know, to other actors, even if you might find yourself on the morally righteous side of, of a struggle. And and what what the book then also shows shows in this uh, this chapter is basically I mean a lot of people have asked basically this this this, this topical question of why the Brotherhood did not adopt a more violent struggle against the regime and I think the answer that this book is is, is uh, can give is that this notion of legitimacy was so much tied to uh, a tactical prescription of staying peacefully in antithesis to the brutality antithesis to the brutality of the coup forces that. The inscription into this like peaceful tradition simply precluded violent resistance as a viable action strategy. So in a way, it kind of conditioned, let's say, the tactical repertoire of the coalition, even in cases where self-defense might actually have been a more rational uh, um, approach uh, to resist. As uh, other cases basically have shown in the region, and there's a lot of work, of course, on uh, the backfire in terms of radicalization uh, yeah. to state repression in Nigeria and also in Egypt, but, like the work of Mohammed Hafiz, for instance and so on. Um, so, so, on the one hand, I think the Kaisers the anti Alliance tells you this like shows the conditioning effect of discourse on um, its articulating subjects, if you will. But then. And this is actually, I think, the second big argument that the book makes. And this this conditioning effect works both ways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is what the second case study shows. Because Raba was not only a crucial turning point event for the Islamists, no, no it was actually, you know, it was also uh, a critical juncture for the regime that the, the, that was just becoming established. So after Raba, it somehow needed to legitimize what happened, right? So, um, the the then general and now uh, president, of course, portrayed. As we, as we know, the story goes with this fact on accordingly as the protection of the nation from terrorists. And well, this nationalist discourse was originally intended to counterweight the protesters' claim to legitimacy. It took a life on its own. And if you will, it placed up until today the authorities in a cage that is so much forged to their commitments to national security that,
0: you know, it's hard to abandon.
1: And this cage then became visible when, when, when Sisi, uh, admits that he will transfer Kiran to Saudi, uh, which is something that you simply cannot reasonably justify within a discourse that is so much centered on protecting the nation, its borders, its integrities, and so on. And this, this juncture then becomes, again, the spark for for new protests. So I guess the book shows that you know there's this, these past dependencies that come with, with meaning-making structures and whenever, you know, walk and talk don't fit to each other anymore, be it on the side of protesters or on the side of regimes, that this can become an opportunity for, for mobilization or for doing politics, if you will, politics of significations, and for changing uh, the relations as they are in, in, in that moment of time. So it's a back and forth, if you will, uh, in these dynamics where nothing is set, but where it kind of, it's, it's a structured contingency, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's, it's fascinating to hear you observe those types of things and, and reflect in those ways because it points to the, the complexity of of what's going on here, the intersectionality, the interdisciplinarity, the the need for a, a complex and multifaceted approach to reflecting on these types of questions rather than a, a singular um, disciplinary approach, I guess, which I think is, is something that you do incredibly well, but it also, I guess, reflects where you are intellectually and uh, in your sort of university home, right? With the the, the center that you're working in.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the center here, the structures that we're working in, they allow me, to, they allow us to, um, uh, if you will, uh, work a bit at the margins of, of, uh, of, of the mainstream of the field. So, um, um, we're able here to, so we have a very productive environment here of, uh, uh legal scholars, uh, political scientists and sociologists that make up different research groups and, um, we closely work together and, and, and I think what, would what unites in, in a way, um, um, what, what is a common, topic or a common trope of our, our work is that it's uh, uh, relational, it's a highly interactive uh, lenses through which we look at processes of social change, um, and we all work from, or most of us uh, at least work from uh, mixed-methods designs or work with a variety of methods, including fieldwork, field research, of course, uh, interview-based, but also discourse analysis and, and first event analysis um as we try to mix and combine them in different designs to look at these processes and, and reconstruct dynamics through different angles if you will. And I think that it's not ex- it's an exclusive, you know, a uh, feature of, of this center here. I think uh, there's a lot of work going on in on on that regard, both uh looking at micro interactions of the Arab Spring and its aftermath, um um a different uh, uh and, and at the emotional dynamics uh, especially um in different parts of the world right now. But uh I, I guess with what we're trying to contribute here is also the you know the structured look on on conflict and violence um, that relates to pro- processes of, of of protest mobilization in the first place so um this, in this research group, radical spaces that that um um i'm I'm heading at the moment um ultimately um it, I, I try to explore how you know spaces of radical politics and radical here is not defined basically only by violence, right? So the way I I think of radical here is, uh, uh, you know, radical spaces are are breeding grounds for our emergent arenas of civic engagement that radically break with common expectations, if you will, and and challenge previous patterns of thinking and doing politics. So it's more a political in the political sense of the word radical. you going to the roots of something and changing the modes of politics. And I, I try to look at, at uh, within the frame of these research groups under which conditions. And in which spaces, um, you know, do these meaning processes uh, take place that allow us to think outside of the box, if you will, and break with the modes of doing politics and sometimes being that can mean, you know, violence and adopting a, a more uh, violent struggle uh, for, for change. But sometimes also, you know, it means actually staying on violence and working uh, with civil disobedience. That can be also the most radical thing that you can do in some context. So, um I try to think through this dynamics and, and also expand, if you will, the the focus of the Middle East to processes in Europe. So at the moment I'm I'm trying to transpose a lot of the insights that uh, I've gained in, in my research so far to processes of, you know, so called radicalization of for instance the climate movement that we're witnessing in, in Europe at the moment. And these are insights from the Middle East that often don't make it into um you know mainstream European politics if you will. But we could actually quite learn quite a lot, both in terms of how uh regimes uh justify their causes of action, but also in, in the ways how social movement create meaning and, and, and uh you know um evolve their 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 movements further. Uh and I think we can draw a lot from that for underst- for our understanding also of process of social mobilisation and of their repression uh in Europe. And, and here, especially in Germany, at the Melbourne ground base.
0: I think you're right to say that. And I, I very much look forward to seeing how all of these things come together and the, the, the findings that you take out of the Middle East apply to Europe and and indeed vice versa. And how we create this, this really interesting point of intellectual synergy between disciplines and, and geographies, which I think is so valuable. But, Janis, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you about your work, your wonderful book, and the fascinating work that you're doing right now with Radical Spaces. So a huge thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks, Sam.
0: A huge thank you to Janis for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at Janis Grimm. That's at J A N N I S G R I M M. Do check him out. Do check out his wonderful book. It's fantastic, and it's well worth your time. And it's delighted to be uh, delighted to say it's been published in open access. So I'll put a link in the show notes. So do check that out. A huge thank you to you as always for listening do please like comment share subscribe and uh, take care of yourselves until next time